We will now hear from our Municipal Legislative Committee and the Legislative Team, Malden Mayor Dennis Raines, First Vice President of the Association's Board and Chair of the Legislative Committee will give the committee's report before the staff comes with the legislative presentation. Thank you, President and Council Member Williams Blake. You know, I was hoping that the governor wouldn't leave so I could tell everybody when I went back home that I got to speak in front of the governor. So, <laughs> oh well, just my luck, just my luck. Good morning, South Carolinians. Good it's great to have you here today uh, for this uh, quite an event that we'll have today. And uh, I have the honor of presenting quite a report, actually not myself, but who I would call the A-Team. But uh, each year, the association's le legislative committee has an important role to play in the development of the annual advocacy initiatives for cities and towns. The committee is made up of a cross-section of mayors, council members, and city staff from cities of all sizes and all parts of the state. So members of the legislative committee today are wearing yellow ribbons on their name tags today. If you, would ha if you have a yellow ribbon on your name tag, I'm going to ask if you would stand, or if you served on that legislative committee and didn't put your yellow ribbon on, if you would stand, please, and be recognized. All those with the yellow. Okay. Thank you for your time and commitment. <laughs> but thank you for your time and commitment to be involved in this all-important process. The association develops it at its advocacy initiatives based on input gathered from hundreds of local officials during the 10 regional advocacy meetings held around the state every late summer and early fall. These meetings give you the chance to voice specific concerns about challenges in your cities that could be solved through legislative action. Another reason it's so important to attend the yearly regional advocacy meetings. Our staff develops recommendations for action on issues that can help most cities. In some cases, the challenges can be met through legislation alone. In other cases, the association also provides research, training, or other support that can help meet these challenges. The staff brings these, these recommendations to the legislative committee which then sends them on to the association's board. This year, the legislative committee and the board of directors adopted three big advocacy initiatives that you've already heard about. They are dealing with a predictable local government fund, flexibility with local accommodations and hospitality tax revenue, and a reduction in the wait time for local law enforcement hires in the South Carolina Criminal Justice Academy. The, these three big issues this, this year are our proactive initiatives intended to address the challenges identified by local officials. The issues that create positive change for cities and towns. Our staff works daily on these initiatives, both with our members and with legislators at the State House. You will notice we call these advocacy initiatives rather than a legislative agenda. Advocacy involves everything from delivering subcommittee testimony and direct lobbying with legislators to communicating with the media 
and engaging key influencers in your community. However, keep in mind that the initiatives aren't an exhaustive list of all bills that we must work on to pass or defeat. In our online tracking system right now, we are following more than 200 bills, including the state budget, that could have an impact on your city or town. Since the start of the legislative session on January 8th, we've had a lot of success with our advocacy initiatives. Our legislative team is here to give you an update on what is happening at the State House today with bills we are following and with our advocacy initiatives. You can find a listing of all those initiatives in your program and on the app. And so what I would like to do at this point is call up, they don't know it yet, but I now call them the A-team. Call up the A-team and that is Tiger, Melissa, and Scott. So y'all take it away. everybody is that a little bit better huh well, good morning and welcome again to this year uh, this 2019 hometown legislative action day uh, it's great to see so many of you assembled here today in Columbia uh, I am Tiger Wells for those of you who I have not had a chance to meet director of governmental affairs for the municipal association I'm joined today by our research and legislative liaison Melissa Carter and our legislative and public policy advocate, Scott Slatton. And we are gonna be giving you all an update about some of the things that are going on um, over at the State House. It has been one heck of a legislative session so far. We are uh, just at the beginning of the fifth week of this legislative session, and we've already seen tremendous and tremendously positive movement on a number of things that are great uh, for South Carolina municipalities. I know um, Mayor Raines has already covered some of this, but I think it bears repeating that your involvement, and you've heard from a number of, of folks, that your involvement and your voices are the most powerful voices that we have. Uh, we serve, uh, you all serve municipalities every day over at the State House, um, but you all are really the big guns. We're the folks in the trenches, but, but you all are oftentimes the air cover that allows us to be successful over there. Uh, so I encourage you all, we encourage you all to please take every opportunity to be engaged and to be uh, dialed in. If you're not receiving our Dome to Your Home weekly update that goes out to give you an update of what happened during the previous legislative week, please talk with one of us and find out how to get that. If you don't receive our Uptown update, which goes out on every Monday, uh, which now includes a podcast, if you don't want to read to read the uh, Dome to Your Home report, you can actually listen to the podcast and hear Casey narrate what happened the previous week to give you a refresher as we go into uh, the upcoming legislative week. So tons of opportunities to be engaged, tons of opportunities to be in involved, uh, but perhaps one of the most important parts or one of the most important entry points uh, for the legislative and from the advocacy staff standpoint is the regional advocacy meeting. Uh, when folks over there at the State House wonder how did the Municipal Association determine what its top advocacy initiatives were going to be, 
how did the association determine how it was going to advocate on this issue or that issue? You all are the answer. I see a lot of faces in this audience, people who came out uh, to the regional advocacy meetings and let us know the issues that you are facing on the local level. And it's those issues that we take as a team and then distill down, bring to our legislative committee and ultimately to our board for adoption uh, as those legislative, as those advocacy initiatives. To reiterate, uh, this year we have three main advocacy initiatives. The first is the reformulation of the local government fund to return predictability uh, to the local government fund for you all so you won't be worrying from year to year, are we gonna get cut this year? Are we gonna get an increase this year? Are we gonna stay stagnant this year? Uh, the second advocacy initiative relates to accommodations and hospitality tax revenue to get you more flexibility with the way that you can use that, particularly to address flooding and drainage issues uh, in your tourism-related areas. And finally, we have the Criminal Justice Academy. Uh, we want to decrease and support legislation that decreases the amount of time that it takes to get a newly hired law enforcement officer into the academy so that they can receive the training they need in order to properly and effectively serve your municipalities. Uh, so without further ado, we'll get right into it. And I'll kick this over to Melissa, um, who has been the point person for the association for several years on local government fund related issues, as well as accommodations and hospitality tax. Melissa. Thank you, Tiger. Does anybody remember the old Wheaties commercial about how you, know, you eat your Wheaties and then you just got the, the, the oomph to get through the day? I swear I think the Senate and the House members have been eating double duty on their Wheaties. <laughs> because the last four weeks, has, we have seen more progression and more energy than I have ever seen in my fairly lengthy career um, involving the State House. So it's been exciting for us. How, many, how many years? I have 31 years of state service. Thank wow, you very much. Wow, she admitted it. That's <laughs> proud of you. There's no hiding from the truth. Um, but it has truly been rewarding and exciting for us because we never get to play offense. We are always trying to stop things from being as bad as, as they can be to our cities and towns. So for us to be able to proactively do some positive things has been just invigorating. And the local government fund recalculation is one of those. Um, as Wayne has already told you, he got a call in December when the new leadership of the Ways and Means came in. So the staff reached out to us and we all agreed that this recalculation is, it, it works because it's a forward looking formula. It mimics um, for the local government fund exactly the way the, the state budget is, is forecast. So whatever the growth rate is given to the estimate for the general fund revenues is exactly what they'll give us up to 5%. And it allows for predictability. So you should be able to plan for this um, well before right now I can give you like first of June, mid June when you're budget starts July 1, I'm giving you the figure. So hopefully this will help. Not only will it, but the bad thing is, if you want to call it that, is we are resetting the clock, so to speak. We are taking the balance that's in the base of the local government fund and just realizing that we will never get that missing $143 million that's owed to us per the, per the current state law. 
So what it'll do is it'll give us the growth factor every year and we'll move forward. And as I was asked by Representative Finley in the subcommittee, he says, well, what's to say that we won't be right back here just like we are with the current calculation? I said, there's nothing. I said, just like councils can't be held accountable years down the road, unfortunately, this puts us in the same position. But I, I really do believe that we're at least 10 to 20 years from ever seeing this issue again. So, and I'll be retired by then, guys. <laughs> so we are very excited about this, and we've gotten word that the Senate is now willing to take it up. It will be read across the desk in the Senate today. So I encourage you, when you walk over there, to tell your senator that you support this bill and you support it because of the predictability and that it gives us more certainty moving forward than we have today and we get off this fight and we can use our political capital to things that will make a tremendous difference moving forward. And I, there's two things that happened over the last couple of years and of course the one thing that happened this year and you'll hear this repeated as we continue to talk but the, the South Carolina Association of Counties and counties in general uh, changed their stance over the last couple of years from being very antagonistic and insistent on the full funding of the local government fund. They were very antagonistic towards the General Assembly for a long time and and so as a result uh, the General Assembly pushed back against that but they changed their their position in the last couple of years to say okay we understand that we're likely never gonna get full funding under the current formula. And so they said, okay, we're willing to, to talk about alternatives, to talk about different, uh, different ways to do the local government fund. And so I, that was one factor I think that's helped. But then of course, as it's been mentioned already, the change in leadership with the uh, Ways and Means Committee, uh, the, the chairman of Ways and Means has changed. And uh, that, that has brought with it a, a new attitude with regard to several issues that we're interested in uh, along with issues that other folks in, in different areas are concerned with. So That's exactly right. A great segue into the accommodations and hospitality tax. Yeah. As Scott was saying, the changing of the guard in um, uh, house ways and means is probably what's really helping or going to help. Yeah. I agree. And, and the second issue, which is priority number two that I've, I have the privilege of working on, is the what we call the flexibility bill. It allows you to use hospitality and accommodations money, both state and local accommodations, towards flooding and drainage mitigation in tourist-related areas. And the, the key here is that one, it's tourism is not, is, as you well know, is not defined. So it, what, is, what is tourism in one community may be a different um, tourism definition in another so that does give you a great deal of flexibility and we've kept this this has got tremendous support it passed the Senate last year and it passed the house but the house restricted it to only Horry County and Charleston County and that was very much unfair to the rest of the communities in South Carolina because I dare say that there is probably only a handful of cities in South Carolina that do not have some form of flooding or drainage issue within their communities. Whether it be runoff, whether it be true stormwater or flooding from the tides. So we are very excited to get this bill forward. It has gone through the Senate, it is in the House, and it is in Ways and Means Committee. What's that bill number? Thank you very much. Oh, excuse me, I was told to give you bill numbers. Sorry, Madam President, I will back up. 
Um, local government fund bill is 3137. Okay, 3137. Please reach out. I'm giving you homework, guys. Okay, listen up. Get your pen and paper. So please tell your senator how much you support this bill. The flexibility bill, the Senate version, is 217, and it has passed the Senate. It is in the House. It, it is teed up for Ways and Means subcommittee hearing. The House version of the flexibility bill is 3132. Now, I know that many of us have had conversations together about flexibility and using these, this pot of money for more than just the flooding. But given the dynamics of this particular issue, and since it's so, um, it applies to so many communities, we wanted to keep this bill truly flooding. And we have already started laying the seeds for other flexibility, issue, um, other flexibility needs for this, these pots of money. And remember that our work here is a marathon. Unfortunately, we never get to sprint in this business. So this local government fund, I helped write this bill three or four years ago, and here it is today being passed. So these things take time. While we, don't, we tend to see the enthusiasm and the excitement at the end game, these things take a long time to percolate, to, for us to educate, and for us to show the needs and how much it will mean to our local communities. So this flexibility bill is one. So I, I implore you to talk to your house member about how much this could assist you and give specifics. Get down, get, get down into the weeds on this one because the more they understand the, the, what truly happens on the ground, the better chance we have of, of getting it passed. And, and the, the issue of looking for funding to to uh, take care of other needs like public safety in particular, there are legislators who are interested in that. This, the flexibility bill may not necessarily be the vehicle to, to get that done, but I've had a conversation and, and we've had conversations with legislators and I had a conversation with a senator just recently who is interested in addressing revenue, uh, revenues to uh, deal with public safety needs. And he wasn't, uh, he wasn't necessarily interested in attaching that flexibility onto one of uh, an existing bill. He's talking about and very enthusiastic about the idea of introducing a separate piece of legislation that deals with a different uh, revenue stream from hospitality and accommodations taxes, something more along the lines of property taxes. So um, you all need to communicate though your needs to your legislators because his interest came from a conversation that he had with one of his local fire districts. And in trying to address the fire district funding issue uh, and having larger conversations about funding in general, he's, he's, he's finding allies in us and in the counties. Uh, so we need to reinforce those messages and y'all need to continue telling your stories and bringing your issues to those legislators because some of them are actually trying to help solve the problem, uh, unlike many years in the past where it's just, no, we're not going to talk about changes in taxes, no, we're not going to increase taxes. Well, they're starting to see the needs out there and realizing there's just not the funding stream out there to, to address some of these things. So they're, some of them are, are, are seriously interested in who can get these things done, who can get these things passed with your help. 
Certainly. Senate Bill 217 has got the most momentum at the moment since it's already passed one chamber. And that's for flexibility. I assume that was. And then 3132 is the House version of the flexibility bill. And then the local government fund is 3137. And, you know, just to, to piggyback, I think the points that Melissa just made and Scott just made, the theme that you'll see you know, running through all of that is the time that it takes sometimes to build these, these coalitions. Um, we were sitting around talking recently about how fast things are moving and about how uh, so much success that we are, are looking to have this year. Uh, and oftentimes we think about the, the apparent overnight success celebrity, right? Seems like one, one day you hear nothing, the next day you hear about this guy or or this lady who's out there singing their hearts out and they just seem to blow up overnight. And then down the line, you watch some documentary and they talk about how they were actually writing songs and putting in work for 10, 15 years before what appeared to be overnight success just um, erupted. And, um, and I, can, I can tell you the, the work that the team has been putting in on this and others within the association and those at the State House who have been slowly, in some cases, building coalitions uh, to get a lot of this stuff done is, is, is very real. So kind of like a bamboo shoot. They say you water it for about five years until something finally springs up over, over above ground. So you just got to gotta be patient. Um, I want to talk briefly about the third advocacy initiative before kicking it to Scott to talk about some of the other things outside of the advocacy, advocacy initiatives um, that are also moving in a, in a positive uh, direction. Uh, so the Criminal Justice Academy, during our regional advocacy meetings, one thing that we heard at probably every, every single one of our nine regional advocacy meetings, uh, we try to have 10, but for the last uh, two years running, because of a natural disaster, because of some hurricane or flooding, we've only been able to have nine. But one issue that we heard resoundingly at every meeting was that it takes far too long to get a newly hired law enforcement officer into the academy so that they can receive the training they need uh, in order to work effectively in your communities. Uh, and so I believe Wayne may have uh, mentioned during his remarks earlier, um, when we heard from our folks, we didn't just run out and say, okay, we got the solution. We started doing, doing some of the groundwork, had a couple of phone calls and actually face-to-face -face meetings with the director of the Criminal Justice Academy uh, got a much better understanding of the issue after talking to him, talking to our local law enforcement officers, not just in the regional advocacy meetings, um, but also those that work with our risk management um, group. Uh, during one of the meetings that Heather Riker uh, from Risk Management Services and Wayne and I had with the director, the idea was floated during that meeting about you know, whether or not broadcasting uh, the classes uh, that, are, that are held there at the academy would be helpful, if that would be something that could help uh, increase capacity. Now, that was just planting a, a seed, and I'm sure many of you who've been reaching out, and your law enforcement officers who've also been reaching out, uh, probably trumpeting that, that same thing, well, it, it, it made a difference. And so what we've been told is that if the Criminal Justice Academy can get a more reliable source of funding, it may be a surprise to some of you, 
but our criminal justice academy which is responsible for the training the basic training of every law enforcement officer in this state gets more than 60 percent of its annual funding from fines and fee revenue so now imagine having to run an agency like that with the importance um, of, of that work not knowing necessarily where 60 plus percent of your money was coming from every year so what we have been told is if they can be moved off of fines and fee revenue onto a recurring line item uh, budget or at least get most of their stuff through this recurring line item then they can institute uh, some, they can use technology, make use of technology to broadcast these classes to the new um, law enforcement hires in the field. That way they can shorten the overall time that they have to spend in Columbia from 12 weeks to eight weeks. They can also, uh, this would also allow those officers to potentially access uh, th that classroom time a whole lot faster They'll also be able to have the classes, turn the classes around faster, which will allow them to create somewhere between, uh, we were initially told 400 new slots. I just saw a memo the other day from the Criminal Justice Academy where they're expecting that they can create 500 plus new slots annually, which will dramatically decrease the time that it takes to get new, uh, newly hired officers fully trained. Uh, so we think this is this is a, a, a huge opportunity. I can tell you, uh, during the time that we spent over there at the state house, uh, both on the Senate side and on the House side, we've never seen this level of consensus amongst the Senate Finance Subcommittee members and the House Ways and Means um, Subcommittee members on this issue. So this seems like the year to get this done. Uh, this is not a, a, I don't have a bill number to give you on this one because this is a budgetary request. But when you talk to your representatives, when you talk to your senators, please encourage them to support the Criminal Justice Academy's request to be moved off of fines and fee revenue and, and to a recurring line item. Uh, in addition to the certainty that this will give the Academy and the benefit that it will give us, uh, in speeding up the training that the officers receive. This is also going to send a great message, I think, to our law enforcement community that we value the work that you're doing in the community. We value the work that you do when you get out of your car and you go into those communities and you develop strong relationships with the community. Because arguably the system that we have in place now sometimes can send the message to our officers that we'd rather you get back in your car and go write tickets. Um, but, you know, but what we're hearing from law enforcement leadership is that they really want to, to have more time to build those strong relationships in the community. And I think this kind of change sends that message. Scott. And, and the law enforcement community, not necessarily local law enforcement, but certainly the Criminal Justice Academy leadership's attitude about this has evolved yes. over the last two, three years. When, when we first started having these conversations, the, the, the focus was back on our police departments and our chiefs not sending quality candidates to the Criminal Justice Academy that were taking up slots uh, that could have been used for somebody who's not going to flunk out. Uh, you know, that, it, was, it was all back on, on you and your departments. 
And uh, as we've had more and more conversations over the years and expressed our thoughts and pushed back a little bit, a lot, then that I think has brought the, brought the attitude back to more accommodation for, hey, yes, there is a problem, let's work together to try and solve it. And you know, this isn't gonna be necessarily the panacea, right. but it certainly is a big step in the right direction, putting the Criminal Justice Academy on a line in the budget uh, and get them off of fines and fees. So again, underscore the point that this is not something that's happened just this year in the last couple of months. This has taken several years to, uh, to bring folks around. So. And they've also realized that they, they can't educate and put enough folks through the academy. They have more leaving the service than they can get educated and graduated through the um, process. So they've got to, I mean, they're hitting a wall with Department of Corrections, mm -hmm. SLED, Highway Patrol. So, I mean, it's, it's unilateral. So it's, um, it's positive to see what's happening. Absolutely. And that, that's what we've heard. I mean, we've heard they, yes, they graduated around 850, and that, that same year, roughly 870 left the profession. So it really is a, a three-pronged issue. There's the capacity issue. That's what gets addressed if they fix the funding. Uh, there's the screening issue that Scott alluded to, and the, uh, uh, they have already instituted a mandatory administration of an aptitude test before law enforcement. This is what's going to be going into place. Uh, mandatory uh, screening using an aptitude test before an officer is sent to the academy. That will make sure you're sending folks who have a reasonable chance of actually successfully completing and then that retention piece rem remains a nut that has to be cracked. Um, so those are our three advocacy initiatives. As I said, I wanna kick it to Scott to start talking about uh, some of these other uh, wins in, in waiting and things that we're sure. starting to see move. Yeah, and, and these are probably the three issues that I'm gonna talk to you about are not new to you. Uh, you've heard us talk about these again for the last couple of years, but uh, because of the groundwork that we've uh, laid over the last couple of years, we're finally seeing some, uh, some movement on the bills. The first bill I want to talk to you about is um, Senate Bill 227, 227, and this is only of interest to 60 cities and towns across the state, but I think it's uh, important that you hear about this uh, because it, it, it demonstrates that change about funding streams that I mentioned earlier, the attitude about funding streams at the General Assembly that I mentioned earlier. And this is the zero millage bill. Um, there are 60 cities and towns across the state that don't levy a property tax currently. And um, for a variety of different reasons, but there are several uh, decent sized towns in the state that need to now levy a property tax millage. Uh, but according to the Attorney General, uh, you can't do that because of the restrictions on the uh, increases that you can put on a property tax millage that are in Act 388, uh, which was passed in 2006. And so Act 388 says, if you want to increase your millage, you take your current millage and you multiply that times the CPI plus growth, and that's the number of mills or the increase that you can put on in millage in the, in the upcoming fiscal year. Well, if you have zero millage and you multiply it times CPI plus growth, you get what? Zero. Y'all well, could all go to the police academy. Yeah, 
So, so that, that's a problem. That's a problem for these, uh, for these towns that now have needs uh, that, that are beyond their current revenue streams. Uh, and so uh, several years ago, we uh, had a meeting with uh, the town of Edgefield and Senator Shane Massey uh, from Edgefield and talked to him about this problem. And we wrote some language that would address this uh, issue for, for Edgefield in particular. Uh, Senator Massey introduced this bill but last year, but it didn't go anywhere. Well, subsequent to that, uh, the folks in the town of Pelzer, anybody in here from Pelzer? Is Pelzer here today? Okay, well, the Pelzer folks didn't make it down, and I don't blame them. Um, they, they had a huge annexation several years ago uh, where they dramatically increased the population of their town. It's an it's a old mill town. Uh, most of the mill village was not in the town, and now it is. And so they're wanting to have some police services in particular, but they don't have the funding for it. They can't, they can't put on a property tax millage based on the uh, 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 opinions from the attorney general. And so they went to their senator, Senator Mike Gambrell, um, who used to be in the House, he's now in the Senate, and they talked to Senator Gambrell. Senator Gambrell introduced that bill, the same bill. Well, Senator Massey introduced the same bill again. Uh, so there were two versions in the Senate that got introduced. Well, Senator Gambrell worked that bill and went and talked to the subcommittee chairman and the, the Senate committee chairman uh, where this bill rested. And lo and behold, we got a subcommittee hearing a couple of weeks ago, and the entire Pelzer Town Council came down uh, in support of this bill getting out of subcommittee. And we also had Roger LaDuke, uh, who's the town administrator in Edgefield, come and testify in favor of this bill. The bill moved out of subcommittee. It went to the Senate Finance Committee, uh, where it won support and came out unanimously from the Senate Finance well, I don't know if it was unanimous. I can't remember if it was unanimous or not, but it was overwhelming support. Uh, then got to the Senate floor, and it's gotten out of the Senate. It's now on its way to the House, or it's in the House. It's in House Ways and Means. And in fact, I talked to uh, Representative Kirby, our uh, anthem singer this morning, who's sponsoring a House version, and said, hey, uh, Representative Kirby, you know your bill's over there. He and I already talked about it. He says, I've already had a conversation with the chairman of House Ways and Means. He says, he wants to wait until after the budget, Let's wait until after the budget, the House get, the Ways and Means gets rid of the budget, then we'll, uh, then we'll take the bill up. So that's progress. What the bill would do is allow uh, cities and towns that don't have a millage to impose a property tax millage. Uh, if you'd had one previously, like um, Edgefield did, then you could put on your old millage and a number of years worth of CPI plus growth. If you've never had a millage, then you could put one on that would be sufficient to generate a third of your previous year's general fund revenues. Okay? So that would give you a starting point, and then you could add on the CPI plus growth over, uh, over subsequent years. So we're, we're happy about this bill. It doesn't affect a whole lot of you in here, obviously, uh, but it's a, a demonstration of the work that has to be done in the years leading up to a point where you can get, uh, get movement on a bill. The next bill I'm going to talk about is Senate Bill 401, 401, 401. And you heard about this bill, the same bill last year. It's the Utility Relocation Bill. Um, for about six years ago, seven years ago, the General Assembly appointed a Utility Relocation Study Committee on which uh, I sat uh, that was to study and come up with a way to help uh, cities and counties and, and other jurisdictions 
move water and sewer lines, pay to move water and sewer lines out of the road rights of way when a road is being widened, okay? Currently, you all are on the hook for that if you own water and sewer lines. And I can tell you in the case of the town of Lockhart over in Union County, uh, on the highway, the Broad River Bridge, it's Highway 9, they're replacing that bridge. The town was scrambling, scrambling desperately to find the money to move their water line off that bridge temporarily until the new one can, can be built and, and replaced. That's not something that is advantageous for cities and towns, and it's certainly not advantageous for the Department of Transportation when they're trying to meet deadlines and maximize the funds that they're using and meet deadlines and get these projects done quickly. So all of the water partners, sewer partners, uh, SPDs, counties, cities, we got together, we came up with a bill, and it's uh, been introduced as Senate Bill 401. It was introduced last year, and it passed the Senate, got over to the House. The House version of that same bill made it out of the full House Education Public Works Committee onto the House floor, but unfortunately, uh, some former leadership now blocked that bill, uh, and, uh, and so it didn't go anywhere, even though there was, there was wide consensus that it was a good thing for uh, everybody involved. DOT is on board with it because, as I said, it helps them deliver projects under budget and on time. They're supportive of it again this year. Uh, we are, want to get more co-sponsors. Uh, Senator Paul Campbell is the primary sponsor in the Senate. Talk to your senator. Uh, if, um, if you are supportive of the bill, and what it does is require um, the owner of the road project to pay for the relocation of those water and sewer lines as a part of the project. You would no longer be responsible for paying for it unless you were the road project owner. I talked to a, a, a city the other day who was concerned about it because they do a lot of their own road work, uh, but that would be a part of the cost of, of, uh, of that road project. You would be responsible for it, but in most of your cases, it's gonna be a DOT who has to pay for those water and sewer line relocations. So uh, please ask your senator to sponsor that bill and ask for it to get a subcommittee meeting. It is in the Senate uh, Transportation Committee. Uh, senator Larry Grooms is the chairman of that committee and uh, he would be the one who could schedule it for a subcommittee meeting. Last thing I'm gonna talk about is not a, uh, a bill issue. It's not a bill that we have. Um, that's been introduced this session, but it's an ongoing issue that you've heard us talk about for the last several years, and that is business licensing. Uh, we are continuing our efforts, and you heard Wayne mention this earlier, we're continuing our efforts to create an online business license payment portal where your city or town could take advantage uh, of, of receiving online payments from your customers who need a business license to pay the business license tax in your city or town. We're gonna to make this available to your city or town for free, um, but there's some things that you need to do in order to be able to take advantage of the portal. You need to uh, modify your business license ordinance, hopefully, uh, preferentially, to the model business license ordinance that we uh, have written on your for you but if you're not gonna adopt the model business license ordinance, what we would like you to do is standardize your due dates to uh, a May 1st to April 30th license year, and we want you to standardize the definition of gross income in your business license ordinance. Uh, 
those are two very important things for you to, to do in order to take advantage of being on the portal. Standardizing your definition of gross income is particularly important because um, the city of Goose Creek just recently lost a state Supreme Court case where uh, the defi their definition and application of gross revenue uh, was interpreted differently than the town was interpreting it and the case uh, ultimately went to the Supreme Court who ruled against the city. So uh, we want you to standardize that definition of income because our, business, our model business license ordinance as a, as a document has been challenged multiple times over the years and we've, we've prevailed each time. The portal is being tested now by some cities that are already uh, in good shape with regard to these standardized uh, practices and standardized definitions. They're on our standard rate class schedule, uh, which we can provide to you, uh, and they are, they're very, very close to the model ordinance. As we work through the software and, and uh, improve it and make it perfect, uh, we will roll it out to more and more cities and if you're interested in that, please let me know. Please let uh, Caitlin Cochran on our staff know. In fact, I'll be going down to visit the folks in Hanahan on Tuesday night next week uh, where they're adopting most of the model business license ordinance. So if you're interested in that, if you've already done it, congratulations, you're in good shape. Uh, but we want more and more of you to, uh, to take advantage of, of the model business license ordinance. And by the way, call Caitlin Cawthorn will be speaking at 445 this afternoon to give you more specifics yep. on this process. Yep. Absolutely. And now, let me mention, uh, with regard to legislation and the business license uh, tax, y'all remember several years ago, we were at this very meeting, as a matter of fact, <laughs> when uh, Rep former Representative Rick Quinn uh, introduced a bill the day before, that day, I can't remember. Day before. That was, was going to really just wipe out business license taxes. Tiger and I had a meeting with uh, Representative Tommy Pope from York County, uh, who's the uh, speaker, House Speaker Pro Tem, and he's also the chairman of the House Tax Policy Review Committee. Uh, and this committee is, has been looking at South Carolina's taxation system, uh, different parts of it for the last year, year or so. Um, he had, during the course of one of their recent meetings, mentioned something about taking a look at business license taxes. And we were like, okay, we need to go have a meeting. So Melissa arranged for a meeting uh, and Tiger and I went over there and sat down with uh, House uh, Speaker Pro Tem Pope and had a very good conversation with him. We explained to him what I just explained to you with regard to the standardization, with regard to the development of the portal. And uh, he asked some very good questions, um, but he said, look, you guys, it sounds like you've got this under control. You're doing a good job. He said, unless a, a member specifically asks us to take it up, then I don't intend to get into business licensing this year. He said, maybe next year if we take it up, the portal will be further along and you guys can come and make a, a formal presentation to the house. That is a, that is a great, that's great news for all of us. And it marks again, a change in attitude uh, among some of the leadership, uh, particularly in the house with regard to the things that you do day in and day out. And so continue to talk to your house members, let them know the things that you're doing to make business licensing easier and business friendly in your city. And we'll continue that, uh, that good momentum going forward. That's right, that's right. Uh, so a lot of, lot of good movement on things related to revenue. Melissa's gonna talk about yet another bill um, that will give you, and this actually ties into uh, a, a case that you all have probably heard about in, in 2018, the Wayfair 
case, uh, which opened up some additional sales tax revenue, internet um, uh, sales tax revenue to be collected by our Department of, of Revenue. Uh, and there's a bill, the Municipal Tax uh, uh, Relief Act, mm -hmm. uh, that is also moving that Melissa is going to talk about. Is Mayor, Mayor Marilyn Hatley in the, in the room? She's here, I saw her earlier. Yeah. All right, well, thanks to her, she, um, she and I helped birth this baby. It is Senate Bill 171 and House Bill 3833. We call it MTRA, Municipal Tax Relief Act. And this is probably one of the things I'm most proud of this year because this is a truly positive movement both in the legislature and I think in the cities and the counties. What this does is it gives cities the equal footing on a capital penny as the counties currently have. So what it would allow you to do is, let's say you wanted to hold a referendum countywide for a penny. This is if for those counties that don't already have the capital penny. This allows the city to take the lead and say, hey, county council, this is something that we want to try. So you get to take the lead and then the county council is obligated to establish the commission and there would be three municipal appointees and three county appointees and this commission would work together and coordinate the needs for your region so it encourages and promotes the cities and the counties to work together and if the county either opts out of wanting to do the referendum or it fails in the county then it lets you go forward and lets you have the second bite of the apple so you could start the process of your own citywide capital penny. It's one cent, up to one cent. It is by referendum up to eight years that is renewable. And then there is a cap of 9% of all the, the local sales taxes. So you can't go beyond that 9%. So it's a win-win all the way around for everybody because it, it doesn't just say, hey, we want the penny, oh, excuse me. <laughs> We want the penny, but we don't care about the county. It first puts everybody at the table, and I think that's, that's the message that I want the legislature to hear, and they are hearing it. And the Senate overwhelmingly last year um, sent this out of subcommittee, but it was, it was a little bit ceremonial because it was late in the session. But as you've heard us say, it, this job is, is, is not for the faint of heart. It is truly a marathon, and so... We're in year three of this baby, and um, we're, we're getting through the toddler years now. So I need you, and now this is your big homework. This is going to be your final exam kind of work here. Either look on your app. There's a one-pager on this, um, gives you the, the highlights of this bill. There are also many copies on the desk out front. Please pick one up or take it, um, pick it up off your app, and go talk to your House member and your Senate member. Get them to sign on and say, hey, this is something we want the opportunity to take advantage of when the time is right. The time might be right now, or it might be something you want to have five, ten years down the road. So I implore you to get out there today, take that one pager, and communicate to your, um, your members, both Senate and House, of how you might want to take advantage of this and how you would like to work with your county. But for those counties that have the penny, it still allows the city to, to go forward under the 9% cap. Anything to add? Did I leave anything out, guys? I don't think so. I think you did. You hit the bill number right. Well, again. No, sir. 
the question was, does the 9% cap include local hospitality and accommodations taxes? It does not. It does not. It does um, not. So it's, again, 171 in the Senate, 38-33 in the House. Um, Representative Elliott did, uh, is the House member and the, Senator Hembree in the Senate and Ross Turner has signed on. So the, the momentum is there. The, um, we've talked to the leadership in Senate Finance and they have promised us in the next two weeks or so there will be a subcommittee hearing. If you would like to come and, and testify on how this might be advantageous to you and in, in your community, please let me know. I'd love to put you on the list to testify. The more, um, the more conversation today and in the weeks to come we can have about this, the better chance we have of getting this passed. So I, I, I challenge you today. Yes. Good Thank stuff. you. Now we would love to sit up here and tell you all that it's all kumbaya over at the State <laughs> House this year and that uh, we've got nothing to fight. Um, but uh, I, I think we got a little bit of job security over there because it's always going to be something to fight. Um, and, uh, and typically it's preemptive legislation that gets introduced that we end up having to fight. But this year, uh, there's also something that you may have heard about. There are proposed changes to the Tort Claims Act. Um, and for you all who may not be familiar with the Tort Claims Act uh, and what it does, just a, a, brief, a brief, very brief history. Um, for years, the state and its political subdivisions benefited from something called sovereign immunity, uh, which basically meant that if you ended up getting injured by someone who was you know, carrying out their duties for the state or, or a city or, or town or a county, you were just kind of out of luck with regard to being able to bring a, a claim. Well, back in the mid-80s, um, our state changed that. Uh, through the Tort Claims Act, and it basically instituted a, a limited liability, and there were caps that were put in place uh, to limit the amount of money that someone could recover through one of these cases. Uh, now, back in 1996 or 97, those caps were reset from the original amount to $300,000 for an individual, $600,000 per occurrence. So that meant if you had a, a situation where multiple individuals were injured, the most that all of them together as a group could get in the aggregate was $600,000. Um, two bills have been introduced now in the Senate. One is S7, uh, Senate Bill 7, and S386, 386. Uh, so both of these bills are now working in tandem to make some pretty significant and pretty impactful changes to the Tort Claims Act. What S7 would do currently, as written, is it would increase that individual limit from the $300,000 to $1 million. It would increase the $600,000 per, uh, per occurrence cap to $2 million. Now, what kind of impact is that going to have on you beyond the obvious, right? The obvious is somebody can collect more money if they, if they bring a successful lawsuit, but it would have immediate impacts upon you through your insurance premiums. Uh, for those of you who may be covered under the IRF, uh, they are projecting some fairly substantial increases. We're talking about in the range of 40 and 50% um, premium increases 
Um, we're hearing from the actuaries that work with the, uh, with the Smurf group, with Smith and Smurf, um, that those premiums could also increase substantially. Uh, if you're a, a city or a town the size of an Anderson, South Carolina, S7 as it is currently written could increase your premium by $100,000 a year or more. Uh, if you're a, a smaller town, let's say the size of, of Monk's Corner, you can still expect your premiums to increase by at least around $13,000 annually. And these are conservative uh, estimates. Um, and so this is something that we are, are uh, pushing hard against. The Senate Bill 386, which has also now been introduced, deals with a different aspect of this Tort Claims Act. Um, one in particular is that it deals with the definition of occurrence. Uh, one of the things that, that we've seen recently is there, there's been some creative lawyering uh, and, and the, the, the term occurrences or occurrence, which is, was intent, uh, intended to limit the amount of claims, uh, is now in some cases being interpreted in a way where it's multiplying claims. Well, now the substance that we've seen of this S386 would memorialize it in law, that every time there was notice or constructive notice of a defect that eventually led to an incident, that could be counted as another occurrence. So what does that mean? That means that your $2 million case just turned into a four, six, eight, $10 million case, potentially. Um, so this is, this, is, this is serious stuff. And from what we're hearing from the insurance folks at a, at a stakeholder meeting that was held last uh, Friday afternoon, if 386 were enacted in its current form, it would make most of you uninsurable, meaning that you would have a, a limited amount of insurance that you could get, but it would not necessarily match up to your total exposure, which of course, leaves all of your local residents potentially on the hook uh, if somebody really rings the bell. So this is something that we're, we're, we're working you know, closely with the senators who are pushing this. Uh, we ask you all, please remember those bill numbers, uh, S7 and S386. If you have the opportunity, please encourage your senators uh, to push against this. Uh, we understand that there are some arguments that, well, you know, these, these limits have not been increased since 1997 and they're too low. Well, uh, there are ways to address these issues through perhaps the creation of a catastrophic injury fund that would not do as much injury to you all immediately as these bills would in their current form. So please support us in our fight and our pushback on those issues. What, one comment to, about what Tiger said with regard to the change in the premiums, the increase in the premiums. For those of you who are in our risk management services programs, the Smurf and Smith, those, are, those premium increases that Tiger talked about were for our members. Uh, and, and our risk management services does a fantastic job yes. at mitigating risk and trying to keep claims down and to try and keep your folks, you and your folks covered and safe, the insurance reserve fund, the state insurance reserve fund doesn't do nearly as much of that kind of stuff. So uh, as much of an increase as you will see in your premiums potentially through our programs, if you're with the state accident fund or the insurance reserve fund, 
you, you need to be concerned about this bill. That's you right. need to be concerned about this bill. And this is in addition to, you know, again, as we were talking about regional advocacy meetings earlier, uh, we know the frequency of these severe storms, hurricanes and floods. Uh, we've been seeing something major every year. And so as a result, you're already seeing premiums increase as a result um, of, of those incidents. And so this is not in the aggregate, but this compounds that increase. And just for your information, our risk management folks are outside at the table waiting to hear from you if you're yes. interested in, uh, <laughs> in our program. So yes. go talk yes, to them. Um, another bill that's, uh, that's been introduced yet again is the plastic bags bill. Uh, and this is uh, Senate Bill 394. Uh, it was introduced a, a little while ago. It hadn't really seen any movement, so we're just kind of keeping an, an eye on this. We've already had this fight uh, last year, and we've, we've seen where a number of, of senators stopped that bill in its tracks, and that uh, bill actually died. But uh, this new bill has been introduced. It would do the same thing that the bill last year uh, would have done. It would take away your ability uh, particularly for you all who are on the coast and even some of you who are inland who uh, have been considering, uh, you know, adopting uh, some of these ordinances in solidarity with your, your coastal municipalities. It would take away your ability to do that. Uh, this bill also does not include any grandfathering language. That means if you're Folly Beach, if you're Isle of Palms, if you're, any, if you're uh, Mount Pleasant, if you're any of those uh, municipalities that have already adopted an ordinance, this bill in its current form would wipe the slate clean and would wipe those ordinances out. So it's something uh, to be aware of. Um, the last bill that, that I want to talk about personally is uh, House Bill 32, uh, 3274. Now, this is one of those bills that we're fighting against because it is a preemption bill, um, not necessarily because any municipalities in South Carolina would be immediately impacted. To our knowledge, uh, currently there are no municipalities in South Carolina that have a, 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 an ordinance that specifically addresses the flavoring of vaping products and tobacco products and those ingredients. Um, but there's been a lot of, of attention uh, in this area. There is one company out there, Juul, that between 2017 and 2018, their revenue went from $200 million to a billion dollars, right, in the span of one year. Well, during that same time frame, youth, uh, use amongst youth, amongst juveniles, increased by 75%. 20% of high school students in our country are now using or addicted to these nicotine um, uh, products like alternative tobacco products, alternative nicotine products like e-cigarettes and, and, and vaping products. 5% of middle school students throughout the country are also using these products. Um, and so what has happened recently is a number of municipalities across the nation, not here in South Carolina yet, but across the nation, 200 or more municipalities have instituted local ordinances, kind of uh, uh, as the FDA figures out what it's going to do, uh, banning some of these flavor products. Uh, what is the FDA thinking about doing? The FDA has called the, ri called the rise 
in juvenile use of these products and epidemic. The U.S. Surgeon General has said the same thing. The American Academy for Pediatrics has said the same thing and said that the use of these products threatens five decades or threatens to reverse five decades of, uh, of health progress and health benefits. Um, and so uh, what this Bill 3274 would do is it preemptively takes away from you your ability to institute an ordinance that would restrict these flavoring products. Uh, the FDA is currently revisiting its regulations and thinking about banning these, uh, but this would keep you from doing anything about it if you so chose to, or if you were, or you, if you were asked by your residents to take action on this issue, this would preemptively take away your authority. We think that sets a bad precedent. Uh, we've been using this as an opportunity to remind our friends uh, at the legislature that here in South Carolina, municipalities are given broad power uh, to enact local legislation, local ordinances, um, particularly those that are aimed towards public safety, even if it involves markets. In fact, markets are specifically included uh, in, your, in your mandate and in your powers for things that you can act on. So that is why, if you're wondering, you know, why are we wasting time pushing against this bill? That is why we think these kinds of uh, preemptive bills set a bad precedent and seek to, seek to undermine your authority and your ability to be responsive to your local communities. Any other preemptive legislation? Yeah, or other legislation? yeah let's talk real quickly about uh, small cell wireless, uh, small yeah. cells. How many of you have got small cell companies coming in and putting in small wireless facilities on, uh, they're asking you to put those up? Um, if you don't already have an ordinance in place to regulate those, we would encourage you to adopt our model ordinance that you can find on our website that uh, provides guidance to small cell uh, installers and, and companies uh, for where and when those things can be installed. And it's important uh, that you address this now because there's some rumblings in the wireless industry and in the telecom industry that hey, the, the adoption rate's not good enough here in South Carolina, and so we may have to seek some, uh, some legislation that would uh, require you to allow these things to be placed anywhere without much oversight. So I encourage you to adopt our model wireless, small cell wireless ordinance uh, or, if, or adopt one uh, at all if you, if you don't want to use ours. Uh, because the, the more quickly you get these things in place, uh, the less of an argument the telecoms will have uh, to introduce statewide legislation that would preempt you from being able to regulate them in any way. And then uh, we've been having conversations with uh, representatives of other parts of the telecom industry uh, who are, uh, they're all, as, as, as wireless technology and as entertainment platforms and deliveries methods change, uh, old technologies are losing revenue and they're really starting to try and find every penny that they can and, uh, and save every penny that, that they can. And so there's been some rumblings about changes to perhaps franchise fee authority uh, that you have right now. We are actively working with these folks uh, to find out what their, what their concerns are and address questions and at some point we would expect that they will uh, go to the General Assembly, uh, some of them, and try and seek some, some preemptive language. So the more things that you can do to, uh, to head off these 
potential statewide efforts now, the better uh, it will lessen your fight and our fight uh, in the future. So just, right. I'll just leave you with that parting thought. And please know that you can reach out to us at any point. Please. We'll be here all day today. And our, our cell numbers, our desk numbers, and our emails are, are everywhere out here. So <laughs> you just holler, and we'd love to talk to you. And we're on the social media, the Twitter. We, have, we all have Twitter accounts. So are better known to the world yeah. as Twitter, if not the Twitter. If you're not following Twitter. us, right. follow us on the Twitter. Yeah, we've there, been tweeting. So. And, if, and if you haven't downloaded the app, please uh, see someone, uh, you know, one of us or someone at the, the desk out there who can help you download the app. Uh, you know, there's a listing of your, your legislators on there. There's lots of good information there. Uh, thank you all again for your attention, for your time, and for your presence. Uh, and please find us if we can be of assistance. Yeah.